0: Well, good morning. It is very good to see all of you this morning. Happy to see those of you. Actually, I can't see those of you at home. wish I could. I wish this worked both ways and I could see you in maybe your pajamas sitting in the Lazy Boy. Um, no, you got dressed for church, I'm sure. Uh, but it's great to have us together, gathering together. Just a reminder for those of you that are gathering at home. Online we're moving our live stream to YouTube only in March. Uh, that's really just motivated by a desire to build connection wherever we can. And so, you know, originally we just wanted to make it easy and available, and the longer that this has gone on, we go, okay, how can we actually build some connection within our live stream community for those of you that are staying at home right now? And so we just thought if we move it to one platform, we can work at building those connections through interaction there, through, you know, just chatting with one another on that platform, Uh, Just having a sense that you're together there, and so uh, we're going to work at that. um, But that change is coming, so hopefully you're trying that at home, trying to find YouTube if you've been a Facebook watcher. Uh, So we will put links to YouTube on Facebook, and that should get you over there. Uh, Otherwise, you can just go to YouTube.com and and search Meadows Christian Fellowship, and uh, should be able to find us pretty easy there. Uh, I got a call last night. about uh, Bob and Phyllis Harrison's uh, son-in-law, their oldest daughter. Her husband was skiing in Missouri with some friends and somehow lost control, hit a tree, and was killed instantly. Uh, And so uh, their world has been rattled once again. And uh, so we just want to pray for them. Uh, This is their older daughter. They live in St. Louis. And uh, they have three kids, three college-age kids uh, Jeff and Kathleen. Kathleen is Bob and Phyllis's daughter. Their oldest daughter, Caitlin, graduates from college in April and w- is getting married in May. And so I, I just go, the, the loss will be felt in a lot of ways there. So I just want to pray for them, and uh, I want to add my voice to uh, to Mark's prayer. I appreciate that prayer as we prepare to hear the word, uh, and yet uh, I feel the weight of bringing the word And so uh, I just want to add my voice to that as we pray for Bob and Phyllis. So pray with me. Father God, um, we just want to lift up uh, the Harrison family to you. Father, I just ask that you would comfort them in their loss. And Lord, even today, as details continue to unfold, as um, decisions uh, come that will have to be made, as they'll have to face into just the tangible realities of this, Father, I pray that you would multiply your grace to them. Father, I pray that you would make yourself known to them in the midst of their grief. Lord, that you would be their comfort and their guide. Father, I pray uh, that you would encourage their faith, Lord. Father, even in doubting, I pray that they would know they can turn to you and And just ask you to help their unbelief. And so, Father, I pray that you'd strengthen their faith. That you would strengthen their family. Father, we're grateful that Jeff knew the Lord. He served you and loved you. And so we have confident hope that he is with you even now. And so, Father, I do pray that that truth would bring a measure of comfort to his family. And, Lord, um, we just pray for Bob and Phyllis Lord, as this is uh, another difficulty, they have another son-in-law facing cancer and waiting surgery and they have other things that have been going on in their lives. I just pray that you would give them strength uh, to parent their adult children well through these sorrows. Thank you that we can turn to you. And Father, now as we turn to your word, I do pray that you would guide us as we look into it. Father, I pray that you would, you would speak, Lord that your spirit would illuminate your word to us this morning. Father, thank you for your word and uh, just for the glory of it, for how we do find you in it, Lord. Thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we've been in this series that I've entitled On Target, and uh, we're going to be in it for a while. We're in it for the long haul. And so uh, I understand that these couple of weeks recently Have been some challenging things, and I have not meant to be pejorative. I haven't meant to be accusatory, but I have meant to be provocative and to just just to challenge us to consider as we come from 2020, are we on target? And, and how do we go about evaluating that? And, and, and what, do we, what do we look to in terms of how we move forward in that? And so we've just put forward these seven shared values of affirmation, grace, humility, trust, submission, maturity, unity. So, that, that end goal of unity is, I think, a fairly agreed upon picture of what God desires for His people. He desires that they would come together in unity. Now, that's not uniformity, so I'm not saying that our distinctives go away. That's not at all what we see of the kingdom of God. We see great diversity, even in God Himself, and yet in unity, in harmony. I think as we move toward that unity, the world sees a clearer and clearer picture of who God is. In his glory, in his majesty, in his work, in his love, they see that as they watch us grow together in unity. And so we're, we're after that, we're in pursuit of that, we're on that path and we just need to evaluate, hey, are we moving in the right direction? And so we started just by saying, uh, what can we affirm in one another? We want to affirm that yes, we are unified in Christ and that unity isn't created. We don't have to work at it, but we do have to walk in it. We don't have to work at it, but we do have to walk in it. And, and the reality of the gospel for each one of us, Jesus Christ, has done something new in us. He's created something new or recreated what he desired, and he's bringing that about. But it is done. It's accomplished. That's what Jesus meant when he declared from the cross, it is finished. This work that I came to do is done. It's a reality for us. And so when we talk about our identity in Christ, we need to rest in. That's a finished work, but we need to walk in that. Even as we looked at racial reconciliation last week and ethnic diversity and all of the challenges that that presents to us. Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that that's been accomplished, that racial reconciliation is accomplished in Christ. It's a done deal, but we have to walk in it. it, it it's not surprising to me that walking is one of the primary metaphors in the New Testament. This reality of walking in what Christ has already accomplished is just referred to over and over and over again. So I just want you to hear this. I believe that affirmation, this this thing that we're after, this ability to declare what's true about each one of us, this desire to share an encouraging word that moves us in the right direction, that flows out of our consistent walk in light of the gospel affirmation flows out of our consistent walk in light of the gospel mortimer adler he says this he's an american philosopher a thinker an author he says we know that if we contradict ourselves or if we think contradictory things we are missing the truth somewhere And so whenever we get a glimpse of our inconsistency, we should pause for a minute and go, what are we missing? And so I think 2020, the gift that it has been to the church, is it has just revealed some things where I think we can see some inconsistency. That that we're not necessarily walking out the truth of the gospel consistently in every area of life. Now that shouldn't bring condemnation to us. Okay, all have sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. We're not going to walk this out perfectly ever until we get to heaven, until Jesus comes again and finishes what he began. But we can strive to help one another walk that out consistently. That's called discipleship. But that requires some ongoing evaluation with a willingness to face inconsistencies in our life and a willingness to repent of those when we see them clearly. To return us to the path, the the walking path of the gospel so that in consistency, the world sees us walking. That metaphor of Walking really is pervasive. I'm uh, studying First John with a group of men, and uh, even in our opening chapter, we saw the metaphor that, that we're called to walk in light. In First John, the, the second chapter that we're in this week, it says to walk in the same way as Jesus walked. We have a tremendous example in Christ. In 2 John chapter 4, we're called to walk in the truth. This is truth. And so this word has to inform everything about our lives. So I want to just say one thing from last week. I recommended some books. I want to say again, I do not agree with everything in those books. Okay, let me say that one more time. I do not agree with everything in those books. What we have to do is we have to read those underneath the primacy of Scripture. But I'll tell you what, the scriptures doesn't give us clear insight into the history of African American brothers and sisters that have grown up in America. The Bible just doesn't give us that insight. Now it informs how we should respond to that insight and it reforms how that should move in our hearts and what should motivate us and how we should act and the attitudes we should have. But it is helpful for us to get a sense of that history. It grows compassion in us. It grows understanding in us. It it grows humility in us because as we read other perspectives, our bias, which we all have, we all have bias. And as we read other perspectives, our bias is challenged and then we come to the word and, and it's a wonderful resetting opportunity to go, okay, am I walking consistently in light of the gospel? Is the gospel permeating everything I think about myself, everything that I think about others, how I engage in the issues that our country and our culture are facing, how I engage in the community of believers that we're a part of here at Meadows Christian Fellowship. I'm so thankful that that Paul in Romans 6, he unpacks the gospel And he says, you have to remember you have been made new. You have been given the ability to walk in the newness of life. If you've identified with the death of Jesus Christ, if you've acknowledged that sin deserves death and that you have missed the mark of God's holiness which scripture declares we all have, if you've identified with Jesus Christ is the answer to that, his life, death, and resurrection, then you have died with him. Your penalty has been paid. And just like that, you've been raised to new life with him. The resurrection is our victory. The resurrection is our recreation that we can walk then in the newness of life. Paul, throughout Romans in chapter 8, he says, walk according to the Spirit. Each one of us, when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. We are indwelt with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is continually testifying to our spirit about the truths of the gospel for us about God's love for us, about our identity in Christ, about our calling into the world, about the truth of the word and how it's to impact our lives. The Spirit is continually declaring that to us. Romans thirteen thirteen. walk properly. That just means there is a way to walk well and there is a way that is not walking well. And we would be fools if we didn't consider, wow, which path am I on? On a regular basis, knowing that we are prone to wander. Our hearts are so desperately wicked. The world is so desperately wicked. Our enemy, the devil, is so desperately wicked. And we get pulled off of that path so incredibly easily. We need to take it to heart that there is a right way to walk. And we have access to the instruction. We have the Spirit of God. But that does not guarantee that we will walk in it. There is responsibility for us to examine, to evaluate, to consider, to confess, to repent, to encourage. So that we can walk consistently in light of the gospel. Romans 14 says, walk in love. Again, we came down to, if we're going to focus on anything, let's focus on love. And so as we have these conversations, because that's been my point every week, can we please have robust conversations with the Bible open? If you've had conversations about the last couple of weeks of sermons, and you haven't looked at the Bible I won't say what I was going to say. (laughs) Open the Bible, please. Open the Bible. And let's start talking about what's in the Bible. Realizing that we have bias toward how we read the book. And then let's let other things challenge that. Not to upend us. Not to uproot us. Not to cause us to doubt but to make sure we're on the right path. And guess what? Doing that together is so important. I can preach my brains out up here, and you can walk out and think something completely different. That's how it works. But when we get together with our Bibles open, and we're challenging one another in love, Things begin to happen. Good things begin to happen. But to do that well, we have to let go of our preconceived notions. Now, that that doesn't mean that we let go of all that we've been taught. It just means okay, if you have a different perspective than I do, let's put it under the authority of Scripture and let's consider it. And can we help each other to grow? Can we help each other to walk consistently? 2 Corinthians 5, 7, it says, walk by faith. This requires faith. We we don't see the end of the line. We don't know when Jesus is going to return. We don't know how long we have to keep this up. We don't exactly know what heaven's going to look like or when it's going to happen. We have to keep going by faith. We have to believe that opening this word That submitting our thoughts and our ideas, what we've read, the things that have influenced us, our past, our perspectives, our pain, we have to believe by faith that this book makes a difference. We have to believe by faith that this book is living and active and that it is profitable to teach us and to correct us and to rebuke us and to encourage us in righteousness. This book is the answer. But that takes faith. It takes faith to believe that these 66 books is what God intended us to have. It takes faith to believe that human authors could have put down the very words of God in such a way that we can understand it. It takes faith to believe that God is speaking in this book. So we have to walk by faith. Again, Paul says in Galatians 5.16, walk by the Spirit. We need to be continually crying out to the Spirit of God. Illumine this Word to us. Open our hearts and minds to your Word, Spirit, because in our flesh, we'll miss the point every time. Ephesians 2.10 says, walk in what God has done. Oh, God has accomplished so many great things, hasn't he? Oh, do we sing of the testimonies and the praises of our God? Do we look at the marvelous things that he's accomplished and believe that he can do those kind of things still today? Do we marvel at what God has done, especially in the work of the gospel? Or do we take the gospel for granted? Do you understand that you have been forgiven by By faith in Christ of your sin. You've been bought back from death. You have been chosen and called and made righteous and seated in the heavenly places. That's what God has done. Do you revel in that? Do you rejoice in that? Do we affirm each other in that? Well, affirmation flows out of a consistent walk in light of the gospel. So if we're not consistently walking in the gospel... I.e., we're stuck in sin. It is so hard to affirm one another in the truth of what God has done. Or if our perspectives have us off course a little bit, it's so hard to affirm one another in what God has done. All of a sudden, even to ourselves, we begin sounding like hypocrites. Because when I tell you that you have victory over sin, and yet I'm living in sin... It's so hard to affirm that. We affirm one another. That flows out of our consistent living, our consistent walk in light of the gospel. Ephesians 4.1, walk in a manner worthy of your calling. We have been called for a purpose, don't you know? We've been called for a purpose to display God's glory in such a way that everything comes under the subjection of Jesus Christ. Everything comes under the authority of Jesus Christ. That's God's will, is that all things that have ever been created throughout all time, all peoples, all creation will be put under Christ. It is accomplished. We need to walk in light of that, and we'll see it fully consummated one of these days. We need to walk as children of light. This is part of our calling. We need to walk as these big, beautiful flashlights in a dark, dark world. We need to walk as wise, not as unwise. I'm so grateful that James says, hey, if, if you feel like you lack wisdom, ask Because God is so eager and anxious to give you the wisdom that you need to walk well because his glory is at stake, his name is at stake, his name is on the line and he wants to give us wisdom so that we can walk consistently in light of the gospel. Philippians 3.17, walk according to the example set forth in scripture. Again, we come back to this book. Colossians 1.10, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Colossians 2.6, walk, walk in Christ. Colossians 4.5, walk in wisdom. 1 Thessalonians 2.12, walk in a manner worthy of God. 1 Thessalonians 4.1, walk well and please God. 1 Thessalonians 4.12, walk properly before outsiders. 2 Thessalonians 3.6, walk not in idleness. Over and over and over again. The Scriptures tell us to walk consistently in light of the gospel. So what has the gospel done? We've been looking at it. The gospel declares that we have been moved from a kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the sun. The gospel has put us in a new kingdom. Now that has ramifications on our lives because our allegiances cannot be divided. We have to be all in on God's kingdom and that has really positive ramifications on culture and country and all of that but we have to be all in on God's kingdom. The gospel has accomplished a kingdom identity in us. It has brought about all that we read about. In Ephesians 1 and 3, it's, it's brought about our gifting by the Spirit where, by which we come together as the body of God, able to function together in all of the beauty of a well-functioning body. The gospel has accomplished kingdom flourishing. This idea that the kingdom of God that is enacted through our lives as we walk consistently in light of the gospel, seen in maturity, are we growing to be more like Jesus? Can you say that you're more like Jesus than you were last year? Are we growing to be more like Jesus? That's part of kingdom flourishing, that that we understand who we are in Christ, that we understand our identity, that we have a better handle on this book, that we understand more of what it means and how to apply it to our lives. That we have a better understanding of what the Spirit has done in us as gifted members of the body. And we are all in on that. We're focused on that, knowing that somebody else is gifted this way and this person is gifted that way, and not coveting each other's gifts, but serving out of our giftedness. That's part of kingdom flourishing, fruitfulness. Are we seeing more of the fruit of the Spirit in our lives? Are we seeing a greater degree of adherence to the word? Are we seeing a greater degree of love and joy and peace and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control and faithfulness? Are we seeing more of that in our lives? That's what the gospel has accomplished. And it has implications on every area of our life. It has implications on everything going on in our society, and I would argue that the world is so desperately looking to something that says we have an answer. Guess what? We have an answer. His name is Jesus Christ and what he's done. But are we walking in it well? So again, I have not meant to be pejorative or accusatory these last couple of weeks. It's led to good, though challenging conversations. Let's do some more. But we have to look into these things. We have to consider what does the gospel mean for us in terms of our country? What does the gospel mean for us in terms of all of the ethnic dysfunction that we see? And we have to understand that there's history of the church and of our own lives, of people that we don't know and haven't heard their story of. There's history that informs all of that. And so we can't simply take a snapshot of my life today. We have to understand what is creating bias in us. We have to understand what is feeding and informing our perspective, positively and negatively. And there's so many things out there that do. It takes effort. It takes grace. That's why we're going to grace next. Man, I need your grace in these weeks because I'm not going to say these things perfectly. I need your grace in these weeks because these topics are way too big for one sermon. And you need my grace in these weeks as we have these conversations and we come to butt heads. We need each other's grace and most of all, we need the grace of Christ. And so we're about done with affirmation. We're going to pray about some things next week and then we get into grace and it will be a more palatable section because we all need it and it's so good. And then we'll move into humility. Well, humility is hard, but if we don't understand where our affirmation flows out of and that we all need grace to stay on the path well, we'll never humble ourselves with one another to go, I might be wrong. So if we end today and you're still saying, I don't agree with you, Pastor Andrew, and I'm still saying, I don't agree with you either, that's okay. We're going to get to humility. And then we're going to get to submission. And we're going to keep working at, can we come together around the scriptures? And together, can we move through these values of grace? We all need it. Nobody's exempt. Humility, that's the only way we move forward. Submission, we desperately need each other. And if we can't acknowledge that, we will not move forward. That leads us into maturity and unity. So, um, if you've heard me say anything that sounded anti-America, I'm not anti-America, okay? I'm just pro-Jesus. And, and if you heard me say some things that were troubling about the ethnic conflict that we've seen, okay, but we've got to wrestle with it. Because the picture I see of the kingdom of God is every nation, tribe, and tongue. And I don't believe that that's just supposed to be in heaven. Because Jesus prayed, let your kingdom come, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we look at the heavenly picture and we go, hey, are we on target with that? And if not, how do we get there? Because that's what brings God glory. And in that, that's what brings us joy. Okay, so now this week. What's one of those other things that I believe has hindered the church for decades from really affirming one another? The sticking point of men and women in the church. There is a little debate on whether or not it would be um, more controversial to preach a sermon in support of speaking in tongues. Or... This sermon on men and women in the church, in this context. Uh, The jury's out, but uh, the people I talked to were leaning toward men and women. It's going to be more controversial. So just understand that I realize I have taken a lightning rod in both hands. (laughs) Because whatever I say today is not going to sit well with any of you. (laughs) Okay? So, um, little grace, little early, before, you know, two weeks from now, little grace... And let's commit to having robust conversations with Bibles open, remembering who we are together in Christ. That's the goal. All right, so we read everything through a bias. Okay, so in, uh, in, in interpretive circles, uh, there's, there's usually a key text that people grab onto. And Gene, I'm going to take my slides out of order just a little bit. I'm going to jump, jump to Genesis chapter 1, uh, which is a couple slides down. Um, in, in interpretive circles, there, there's what's known as a priority text or a, a key text. And so it's, it's a lens that informs perspective on other texts. Okay, so there are a couple of key texts in this debate. Neither one am I going to use. On one side of the debate is where we were last week in Galatians 3, uh, verse 28. And and I'll I'll just just read it so we get the the stage set again. But uh, Paul says there, he says, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free, there is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And so, one side of the typical argument comes to this text and goes, everything's equal. Okay? Uh, The other side of the argument typically goes to 1 Timothy uh, chapter 2. And I'm not going to read all of of that, but I'll read um, the... The, the section that typically gets the most attention. Uh, I just have to find it here. So um, Paul is saying... I desire then. Uh, this is verse eight. I desire then that in every place that men should pray, lifting up holy hands, without anger or quarrelling. Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly attire, but with the proper, but what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness i do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man rather she is to remain quiet so those are those are the two primary focused texts of this typical debate okay my hope is to to change the way we have the debate today that's that's my goal And to start with, I just want to start with my key text for how I view this argument in Genesis chapter 1. So in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26, 27, and 28, here's what the word of God says. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Here's why I want to start with this text and then say this should be our priority text as we come to this, this issue. Because what this text tells me is that male and female both are created in the image of God. And that has dramatic implications. That would also mean that in both male and female, the image of God was marred by sin because that's what we get in chapter 3. And so both male and female are made in the image of God. Both male and female are guilty of sin. But then by extension, I go both male and female are redeemed in Christ through the gospel. That means to me that both male and female have all of those realities of the gospel applied to them and both male and female are able to, by the Spirit, not perfectly, but in ongoing consistency to walk consistently in light of the gospel. That also means that both male and female have been given gifts by the Spirit. Now that we can affirm in everybody. We can look around at one another and say, you are a gifted child of God. It's interesting that we are given one right in the gospel. We only have one right. And it's the right to be called the children of God. I don't need any other rights. That one right, that we have the right to be called the children of God, is amazing. That means that God is on our side. Now that informs our sense of duty to one another, not our sense of rights. And in Western culture, thanks to Immanuel Kant, who began to shift that perspective that that really what you're asking of me to do, my duty, informs my rights. Now, I deserve to have these rights. But in God's kingdom, he says, hey, I'll give you one right. You have the right to be my children. And that informs your duty. Because all of us are children of God. And so we don't have the right to say, hey, you have to love me. No, but as children of God, we have the call to love each other. Do you see how that makes things a little bit different? Instead of standing back and saying, I have this right, and you need to do your duty, we can say, oh, I have this right, I need to do my duty. Now, where does this come into tension with men and women? Well, I'd argue that it comes into tension from what has given us bias on this issue. So, let me just read a a few quotes from church fathers who have influenced this conversation dramatically over time. Here's Origen. He's a theologian, Greek father, second and third centuries. Here's what he says on a passage in 1 Corinthians. Men should not sit and listen to a woman, even if she says admirable things or even saintly things that is of little consequence since it came from the mouth of a woman. How are you feeling, women? Okay, let's fast forward a little bit. Amen. Amen. Okay, let's fast forward in time. We get to Tertullian. He says, And do you not know that you are each an Eve? The sentence of God is this sex of yours lives in this age. The guilt must of necessity live too. You are the devil's gateway, you are the unsealer of that forbidden tree, you are the first deserter of the divine law. You are she who persuaded him whom the devil was not valiant enough to attack. You destroyed so easily God's image, man. On account of your desert, this is death. Even the Son of God had to die. And do you think about adorning yourself over and above your tunics of skin? Okay, so, so what he's saying in the midst of that is women... You caused Jesus to die. And men, because Adam was invincible to Satan, you're far superior. Let's fast forward a little more. Uh, Augustine, the Bishop of Hippo. I don't see what sort of woman, what sort of help woman was created to provide man with if one excludes procreation. If woman is not given to man for help in bearing children, for what help could she be? To till the earth together, if help were needed for that, man would have been better helped for man. The same goes for comfort in solitude. How much more pleasure is it for life and conversation when two friends live together than when a man and a woman cohabitate? Okay, so church father Augustine is saying, hey, women, you're good for making babies. Thank you. He goes on, women was given, woman was given to man, woman who was of small intelligence and who perhaps still lives more in accordance with the promptings of their inferior flesh than by superior reason. Is this why the Apostle Paul does not attribute the image of God to her? Again, he's talking about a passage in 1 Corinthians that we'll get to in a minute. Let's fast forward uh, even a little further. Martin Luther. For woman seems to be a creature somewhat different from man. That is true. In that she has dissimilar members, a varied form, and a mind weaker than a man. Although Eve was a be- most excellent and beautiful creature, like unto Adam, in reference to the image of God, that is, with respect to righteousness, wisdom, and salvation, yet she was a woman. For as the sun is more glorious than the moon, though the moon is a most glorious body, so woman, though she was a most beautiful work of God, yet she did not equal the glory of the male creature." So I read those quotes just to say, our bias, if you've been in church for any length of time at all, has been informed by this perspective, because this perspective has been carried forward through decade and generation. Now, it's grown. You can see even progress between these time periods. Where at least Martin Luther uh, acknowledges that, that woman has some part of the image of God in her. But not a full part. That has informed church history. That has informed the perspective of troubling passages for generations. And it has informed our church. I was surprised... When people left the church, when we began allowing women to be ushers. Now just think about that. Ushers stand at the door and hand out bulletins, and they pass the plate down the row. But when we allowed women to be ushers, people left the church. Okay, so it's, it's here, it's in our DNA. It's not just part of church history, it's crept into Meadows Christian Fellowship. And I just want to encourage us, can we, can we look at that, and can we consider the impact that we've had on women in this church, and then can we grieve what we've missed out on? Cindy Goding, I have her permission to do this. Cindy Goding wrote a blog a couple of weeks ago. She says this, hello all. The words identity in Christ have been brought up quite a bit recently and used in many different scenarios. While this phrase sounds amazing and truly what we all want in our hearts, if someone were to ask us, what does that mean, could you answer? I've been thinking about this phrase a lot lately. I think one reason we all struggle with it is because we are trying to make it one size fits all. And I've come to realize that simply isn't true. Our human identities aren't identical either. Some basic identities will align, such as a working professional, a stay-at-home mom, a teacher, a grandma, or something else. Yet even those, we are at different places. Our journey with God is unique and beautiful and completely different than one another. That's why it's so special to share those stories and to hear how God has moved in each other's lives. We have the same common beliefs and values, but... How God works and speaks into our lives is going to be special to each of us. When it comes to our identity in Christ, realize that God calls you to him in his own way and manner. Yes, we are all adopted into the kingdom, but our journey to get there is very different. Yes, we are all blessed, but we are all uniquely blessed in different ways. Yes, we are all chosen, but God has given each of us gifts and skills that are specifically designed for us. So when thinking about your identity in Christ, don't try to fit into the box with others. We are kingdom women. We have been rescued from darkness and transferred to the kingdom of light, but how we shine that light to others is going to be different. Some will be called to teach. Some will be called to to missions. Some will be called to work. Some will be called to stay home. But all will be called to spread His light And how he has made us. I love that Becca Baggett said on Friday evening at story night. We are all known by God. So if you're struggling to understand what your identity in Christ is. Know that you are not lost. You are not forgotten. You are not nobody. You are known by God. You are loved by God. You are seen by God. You are cared for by God. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now I share that blog um, because I read that blog and I went, How insightful! How helpful! To know that, yes, as we talk about this complex idea of identity in Christ, it is going to look differently for each of us. And and we're going to help each other realize that. But there's some core things that you can hang on to, even on the journey. It's a word we need to hear. It's a perspective that that we need to hear. It's a gift that needs to be exercised. I believe Cindy is a spirit-gifted teacher. Now, where does she serve in our church? How does that work? And, And is she relegated to women and children, which has been the history of this debate? Or is she allowed to use her gift in a more full way? Could she come up here on a Sunday morning Without some special introduction that, yes, the elders have sanctioned Cindy Goading to be up here to share a word. Her message has been approved and gone over. Is it possible that she could come up here and exercise her giftedness and that be received by everybody here? I think in the kingdom of God, that's what he desires. Because I start with Genesis 1 26 to 28. I start with there's the full image of God in male and female and I understand that sin has marred us both but Christ has redeemed that image and then he has gifted that person for the good of the body. What are we missing in our body? Because we've had a bias towards these texts? Now, it's still a challenging question, and I'm not going to answer it fully this morning because to unpack these texts is significant. It takes time, and I'm already way over time. But I want to tell you, here's the texts. There's five of them that are central to this debate. And I just want to point out one little thing in each of the texts, 1 Peter 3, 1 to 7. It's a a big text, but 1 Peter 3, 7 has been a really meaningful passage to me as a husband. It says, Husbands, you're to live with your wives as the weaker vessel. And a lot of people go, See, they're inferior because it's talking about weakness there. I go, If you read the, the whole context of that text, both male and female are weak. Okay, men, you need to hear, we're weak. Without Jesus, we're nothing. And women, you're more delicate in the best way possible. Now, there are some women that will shame me at the gym, okay? I get that, but, but generally speaking, women are just more delicate. They're physically weaker, but that has nothing to do with their ability to minister among God's people. Now, um, jump to uh, 1 Corinthians 11. Now, this one's really, really tricky. But seeing no head coverings in the room, I'm going to say we've kind of moved on from this text. <laughs> because that's what the text is about. Now, we might, we might have a debate about should long hair or short hair, but even that, I think we've moved past. Here's what I want you to see in that text. In the opening verses, Paul says, I want you to understand something. Okay, we need to understand something. Except that Greek word is much better translated to see. I want you to see something. I want you to perceive something. I, I, I want you to look at a picture. And, and if we view it through that lens, those really those two lenses of women are a physical, physically weaker being still fully in the image of God still fully made available to all that is in Christ and we're supposed to see a picture then how does that bring the other passages into focus Ephesians 5:21 to 33 okay there's the the whole question of is it should it be 5:21 or 5:22 where the paragraph starts okay people want it to be 5:21 if they want women to hear you need to submit because that's where the verb submit is is in 521. If you start in 522, you totally miss that verb, and it's like, ah, oh, now what do we do? Okay, b- but I want you to see the picture of one flesh. See, that's, that's what's portrayed in Ephesians 5, that, that the, the husband is the head of the wife. If my wife was here, I might have her come stand up here, and she could stand in front of me and kind of tip her head, and I'd put my head on her neck, and I would be the head on her body. We are one flesh. That's what happens when we get married. Guess what? That's what happens when we come to Jesus. And so Paul goes, I want you to see a picture of one fleshness in marriage and in the church. We're supposed to be this body together walking in consistency in light of the gospel. Galatians 3.28, we already looked at. But in Christ... There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, male or female. Christ is the great equalizer. That's what it takes to become one flesh. That's what it takes to be knit together as the body. And We could go into all kinds of things here, but uh, 1 Timothy 2 is one of those keynote texts as well. And I'll just say one thing, the word authority that gets so much attention, that Paul says, I do not let women teach or have authority over men. That word authority in the Greek, that is the only place in all of Scripture that it's used. And there is zero consensus on what it means. And if we're going to take that in the literal uh, um interpretation that has been thrust upon us, then we also need to go down to the end of that section and go, what does it mean that women will be saved through childbearing? Start having babies. That is not how a woman is saved. A woman is saved the same way a man is saved, that when she comes to faith in Jesus Christ as Lord Jesus. And Savior. So in this, I haven't explained anything well or I haven't brought you to any conclusion. But I just ask you, can we come to robust conversation so that we're not missing the beauty of this fellowship together and affirm what God is doing in us as we help each other to walk consistently in light of the gospel? Now, I'll just give this one caveat, and I don't have time to even unpack this. In our Constitution, we still say that elders will be men. You go, wait a second, you've just voided everything you've said. Well, here's the thing. As I have worked through Scripture, what I see... Okay, this isn't declared, but what I see time and time and time and time again is that God calls men to give an account. All right, so you got Adam and Eve. Eve takes the fruit. God comes, goes, what's going on? But he doesn't say, Eve, what did you do? He said, Adam, hey, Adam, what happened there? Adam's like, "Uh, uh, uh, I don't really know. I just got here. She handed me fruit. I... uh, Abraham and Sarah, God shows up. Abraham and God are having this conversation. Sarah's over here and God says, hey, your really old wife's going to have a baby. And Sarah goes, <laughs> she thought that was funny. God doesn't go, hey, Sarah, why are you laughing? God says, Abraham, wh- why is your wife laughing? And let me, let me just try to emphasize that phrase differently so we can hear it. Abraham, why doesn't your wife have more faith than that? All right, we get to uh, Deborah. She is a mighty woman. She is a warrior. She leads the people of Israel, and God uses her in mighty ways. And on one side of the argument, people go, wow, look at Deborah. She is the example of this great woman leader. We should see that and follow that and acknowledge that. And on the other side of the argument, they go, oh, she's just an exceptional woman. You know, she's, she's an exception to the general rule. But here's what I see in Deborah's story. You get to the end of the story and God shows up and God goes, hey, I want an account of what just happened. But he's not talking to Deborah, he's talking to Barak. Over and over and over again, when God comes to say, hey, is there biblical flourishing in creation? Is there biblical flourishing in the lives of the people in your sphere of influence? Is there biblical flourishing in your family, in your church, in your world? He talks to men. Now, women, I don't want you to hear that as a unique privilege for men because that makes me fearful. I read Hebrews thirteen seventeen that says, hey, leaders are going to give an account. I'm going to stand before Jesus. One of these days, I will stand before Jesus and I will have to give an account for the spiritual vitality of this flock. I will tell you that is not a privilege. That is a sobering responsibility. That is a heavy weight to bear. But over and over and over in Scripture, what I see when God comes to say, is there biblical flourishing? Is there a good understanding of the gospel? Is there a good understanding of who we are in Christ? Is there a good implementation of the giftedness of the Spirit? Is there growth and maturity? Is there fruitfulness? Is there multiplication of the kingdom? He turns to men and he says, give me an account. Men, we are responsible to see our wives and our women flourish in this place. That means that if they have a more visible gift than we do, we go, go, woman, go! But I don't know that we walk in that consistently. So my prayer is that we would richly and deeply affirm one another, that we would declare what is true about one another. But affirmation flows out of a consistent walk in light of the gospel. So are we on target? And can we openly, filled with grace and humility, can we openly Have robust conversations with the Bible open for the good of our church, for the glory of God, and for the joy of His people. And answer that question together. Let's pray. Father, Father, I just pray that um, whatever words need to fall away that they would fall away, that um, that whatever words need to stick, that they would stick. Father, my heart's desire is that this place would be on target. My heart's desire is that this place would be vital, alive, impactful. My heart's desire is that this place would be a beautiful picture of the kingdom and kingdom flourishing in this place for your glory and for our joy. So, Father, I just pray that you'd reveal our inconsistencies. Father, I'm so thankful that you don't condemn us in that. But you lovingly invite us to confess and repent, to walk again. And Father, you've provided us with your word and with your spirit and with your people. Lord, may we help each other to consistently walk in light of the gospel. Thank you in Christ's name. Amen.